Welcome to When Things Go Wrong, a show about what happens when the things you expect to go just fine simply don't. I'm your host, Frank Sapovitz, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dan Donovan, an expert in crisis management, emergency operations, and security planning. Dan is the founder and managing partner of Stratoscope, a formidable force in the sports and entertainment industry focused on stadium and arena design and operations planning. His 20-plus years of experience spans work for the NFL, NBA, NCAA, and events like the Super Bowl, All-Star Weekends, and seven Olympic Games. Previously, he co-founded the Inicon Group to focus on enterprise-wide operational risk solutions to include readiness, planning, training, and preparedness exercises. He founded Stratoscope a few years ago to continue to grow his influence among operators of world-class sports and entertainment venues and organizers. Here's my conversation with Dan Donovan. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks for joining us, Dan, on When Things Go Wrong. Great to be here, Frank. Well, it's great to have you. So, Dan, let's get right into it. You've been involved in every phase of crisis management, from planning to responding in the heat of the moment to analyzing and learning from the outcomes of some really difficult and sometimes tragic situations across the globe. Let's start with the planning side of crisis preparedness. When that's done right, there's less of a chance of something going wrong, or you're better positioned to manage the situation when it happens anyway. When many of us think of the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, we remember the bombing in Centennial Park. That act of domestic terrorism completely dominated the news cycle from July 27th onward. And notwithstanding the tireless work of hundreds of Atlanta Organizing Committee staff and thousands of volunteers, there was a different story percolating through the media and making its way into the public consciousness. Now, Dan, you were on staff there at the time. So tell us about what was happening behind the scenes. When events of any size, things are going to go wrong. And as organizers, we are generally judged by how well we resolve those incidents. If we're quick and efficient to resolve things, we'll be you know, judged favorably. That's my belief. When we don't resolve things quickly, that's when the public doesn't have a lot of patience for us as event organizers. And, you know, we're at the 25 year anniversary of the Atlanta Olympics this this week. And the the first and foremost thing that, you know, I recall from those games was at the time they were the best games of their time for the athletes, the fans and the broadcasters. In terms of experience and presentation? Yeah. and, And just, sheer quantity we we had the, the largest venues ever the athletes loved the village and they loved everything you know about all of the arrangements but we were still getting beat up by the media the big challenge we had was really around the technology for the result systems for the media and the transportation for the media so while the public was watching these events unfold on nbc in the us and 
you know, other broadcasters around the world and seeing these great events each night, the papers the next day was how badly we were handling the transportation and the technology for the games. So it was a real challenge for us. And as an organizing committee, we weren't prepared for managing the, this type of incident that we we're dealing with across multiple departments. And our leadership, great people, A.D. Frazier as our COO and Dave Maggard as, as the head of the sports department. And I worked in the sports department at the time. My role was to ensure that the timing, scoring, and results for the sports department were provided by our technology partners. And our technology partner happened to be a top sponsor. And they were paying, they wrote a big check to be, to have this, this ability, but it wasn't working. And we got to the games first days and, and, and as, as those things were not coming together, we had people in leadership positions still kind of pointing the finger at each other as to why this was a problem instead of how are we going to fix it? And so that really transpired into the media transportation challenges, getting them to and from the press center and to the venues and bus drivers getting lost. And it, for some reason, it only happened on the media buses. And then them not getting the, the results in a timely fashion when they're either at the venues or at the, um, at the press center. And that was really the theme of what was happening to the organizing committee prior to that you know, terrible day on the 27th. So Dan, after the, the bombing at Centennial Park, and clearly everybody's attention was focused on that, were you still working on solving the problems that had happened before? that had dominated media coverage? You know, the, the media coverage shifted quickly, right? It, it got really focused on the incident at Centennial Olympic Park. And, you know, that incident happened very late at night. And I had just gotten home that night and got the news. And it was adjacent to our headquarters. Centennial Olympic Park and our, our headquarters building were right next to each other. So the whole place is locked down. And so at one in the morning, I was told, get some sleep. We're going to need everybody, you know, all hands on deck in the morning. And so now we get really focused on, are we going to have competition? And are we going to have the staff and volunteers in order to actually run the venues and run all the systems? And I remember, you know, driving in early that morning and we, we I, I was studying schedules and I'm looking at where are we going to have the biggest problems first thing in the morning? And I ended up taking myself to the Georgia Dome, which was the host of basketball and gymnastics, not far from the park. Drove by that scene, got that cringing feeling, and then said, got to get focused on, on what's going to happen for the day. And the incredible story that isn't really well told from that morning is the turnout of our volunteer staff was through the roof positive. Everybody thought we were going to have this huge attrition because people were going to come back in a volunteer capacity. And Frank, they came back stronger than ever. And so from that point forward, really the news cycle shifted to, you know, the, you know, staying on the, on the, on the Olympic athletes and the competitions, but then it was, you know, what was going on with the park and would we reopen the park? And from memory, I think it was 48 hours and we had a reopening ceremony of the park and, you know, the, the Olympics were back on track for the, for the rest of the week. And, and at that point, the things that had been going south before the bombing, was there a little bit more tolerance on the part of the media in terms of being able to, to understand that, you know, things have been disrupted? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that 
A, we, we got a little chance to gather ourselves and, and put some band-aids and fixes in place. And B, they got off our back because we just went through the situation that we did. Four years later, Dan, in 2000, you were involved with the Summer Olympics again, this time in Sydney, Australia. How were your preparations for that event different based on your observations and analysis of what had happened in Atlanta? Well, Sydney was a phenomenal experience. I was working now for an organizing committee that was government funded, which is a completely different structure than in in the U.S., where organizing committees are private. And and around the world, when you host, it's usually government funded. Completely different experience for us. And I ended up as the head of the sport competition department. So all 28 sports for the Olympic Games reported to me. The, The security department of the organizing committee was led by the New South Wales police. And the New South Wales police, the, the head, he came to Jim Sloman, our COO, and convinced him that we had to practice solving problems prior to the Olympics. We had run all these test events in 1999, and, and they came together and they said, look, transportation is doing their thing, and, and police and security are doing their thing, and you guys are doing your thing, and we're not all really aligned. So they put us through some exercises, the first couple being very security focused. You know, terrorists taking over a baseball stadium, and they'd They'd pull us in at different times of the, of the scenario. And these were largely security focused for the agencies to work together on how they're going to resolve something. And then they said to us, we we're about 60 days before the Olympics. They said, we're going to run a 60 hour real time simulation of what we're going to face in two months. And when they told me that I was, we were still in the throes of trying to finalize what our operations center was going to look like and who needed to be there. And more importantly, as you know, who didn't need to be there. And so they're like, you're going to, we're going to be locked up from, you know, Friday through Sunday night doing this. And it's going to, we're going to simulate the first weekend of the games, have your stuff together, have your teams ready, because you're going to get real time phone calls. And they had it set up to where my staff would call me, the head of, you know, Equestrian would call me and say, XYZ just happened. And they had it all scripted out. It was really phenomenally run. And I was thinking to myself prior to this, I don't have time for this. I mean, we're 60 days out. I don't have, I don't have three days to dedicate to practicing and exercising because having even been a former football coach, obviously I knew the value of practicing. I didn't understand it in this context. And when we got to the end of that weekend and um, Jim Sloman looked at us and he looked around the room and he goes, all right, now I know who I don't need here. And now I want these people located in these seats around me. And we need this kind of technology, we need this. And we really then had a plan on how we're gonna handle the problems for the Sydney Olympics. So spending that two and a half days, you were able to, to really pressure test your plan, find the vulnerabilities in it before you were in the heat of the moment. Absolutely, and find out most importantly, who could interact with each other when the chips were falling the wrong way. So when you say that, you mean in terms of how well they were communicating with one another? Yeah. You, how accurate? Personality-wise, how, how could, they, could they be team players and just figure out how to solve it and not be worried about whose problem it was? And did they have the right resources to reach down to get the right answers to be part of the solution? Or were we going to have to kind of step in and get the answers for them? So, Dan, staying with Sydney for a moment, uh, smaller and more local projects that don't have as many intricate details as the Olympics can still learn a lot from the things that went wrong on on the world stage. And 
how those situations were handled or managed or communicated. Now, there were two lessons from Sydney that we can talk about. And one happened during the opening ceremonies in front of 3.7 billion television viewers worldwide. Well, the best thing about when things go wrong is when most of the world doesn't realize it. If you go back to that opening ceremonies, Kathy Freeman was selected to light the flame. And Kathy was fast in becoming the Australian hero as an Aboriginal track and field sprinter expected to bring home the gold in the 400 meter. So she's being positioned as, you know, I mean, it was Muhammad Ali in Atlanta. It's Kathy Freeman in Sydney. And Kathy is standing there. She's, you know, we're at, we're at the lighting phase. There's a, there's a huge ring around her feet of water and this cauldron that's going to come up as the flame. It's going to mix water and fire. And she puts the torch down and she lights the flame. And this thing rises up around her body above her head and, and the torch goes up with her. Now, this was practiced multiple times. And I saw it practiced about a week before the actual opening ceremony. And the, the idea was that once that big cauldron got above her head, a conveyor type system was supposed to come down from the top of the stadium and a hook, for lack of a better explanation, is supposed to come through and grab this cauldron and pull it up the stadium all the way to the top to its final resting place for the, for the two weeks of the Olympics. Well, the hook came through and it hit the post that it was supposed to grab and it didn't catch. And if you watch that video, you'll see a little shake of the cauldron. And Kathy Freeman stood there completely unfazed, just with the torch above her head and didn't flinch. And our production people at the stadium did a phenomenal job at looping the song, the, the song that is, is associated to the lighting of the torch. And so we're in the op center and everybody's like, well, what just happened? And so now the communication's to and from the stadium and, the, and, it, and it, it went to be, well, how much time do we have? Well, the hook has to travel all the way up to the top of the stadium again and all the way back down to grab it and, and try and get it back again. Okay, great. Um, hopefully Kathy will stand there and not flinch and the music will keep playing and no one will notice. No, it'll just look a, like a dramatic pause. It's, you know, maybe two minutes. Um, what if it doesn't work again? You know, well, I guess we'll just run it, you know, another, we, we, there, there's no other backup. And pretty soon the question was, well, how much propane do we have? And that's when I looked at, cause I wasn't involved. I'm in the sport. I'm running the sports department. I'm not involved in the ceremony. I said, wait, what? What do you mean? How much propane? They said, no, the, the, the cauldron above her head is, is running on a tank that's temporary. And it's only got enough propane for it to stay lit for a, a period of time. Well, now everybody is tight because you know, we're thinking, what if that thing goes out on the way up? Like what a disaster that'll be for the international television viewers. And it'll be the talk of the next 16 days, of the Olympics. Fortunately, the hook comes through the second time. It grabs the cauldron. It gets it up to the top. We have maybe 30 seconds of propane left in the tank. They get the, 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 the hard line in and, you know, nobody knew the, the wiser. Well, it, it's great that it worked out that way. If it hadn't worked out that way, you're hundred percent right. I mean, people would have, would have known and it would have been a well, public relations discussion all the way through the, the game. So, um, 
one of the things that you mentioned that I think is a really good takeaway is if, if you can keep your composure in front of the public, you're going to be, you're going to be in a better place. Absolutely. If everybody sees you panicking, if she had looked around and looked confused, um, that would have been a big problem. The other is, uh, if you had the ability to communicate with her, you could have told her to do that. Luckily she did it on her own. Right. The fact that you, you, uh, couldn't communicate with her, you were kind of relying on that. But, but I always find that one of the problems, one of the big problem areas you're going to have is in the place you can't communicate with. Absolutely. In real time. And, and then, and then you can't provide additional instruction or counsel. So there was, there was another lesson in Sydney, uh, which, which revolved around one of the most watched competitions at the Olympics, which is women's gymnastics. And you were involved directly with this. I think the, right. the early stages of the event progressed in, in Sydney and it was kind of clear that something wasn't going right. Yeah, we, you know, so this is directly, you know, my team's responsibility. And I, I had a great competition manager by the, by the name of Kim Dowdell and, and she was fantastic. I was really confident in her abilities to handle anything at any venue. And we were very decentralized in our approach because with 28 sports, you can't, you, you can't get into the minutia, right? But it was, it was very important that we had really good communication between our competition venues and our op center to, to get them the best information and help. But is the women's all around final. And we start to get some, some rumbling in the op center that there's a problem. And you see, if you go back and look at the video, the first, I want to say 16 female competitors in the final have horrendous scores and, and a lot of, you know, crashes, crashed, not, not good landings. Let's say that, you know, the, the talk starts happening. Now I start looking into it. I'm in the op center and I reach out to Kim and her assistant answers her phone, which is always a bad thing when you're trying to find some, you know, a decision maker. And she tells me, we've got an issue. We're trying to get the answers. Kim will call you right back. At this point, I've got to turn to my boss, Bob Elphinston, who, who ran the overall sport department, and then Jim Sloman, our COO, and say, listen, guys, I think we do have a problem. And so now everybody's focused on what's going on in, on the broadcast. And it turns out that the vault was set a notch lower than it was supposed to be set for these first 18 competitors. It was actually an Australian, young Australian 16-year-old gymnast who actually noticed it and said, I think we have a problem. But she did her jump. She noticed it from, you know, from 70 feet away. She did her, her routine, didn't stick it, came back and walked over the vault, you know, knowing how high a vault should be on her body and said, it's wrong. And her coach saying, you're crazy. Now Kim calls me and said, we've got a problem. We have a vault that was set at the wrong height. I said, Kim, how is that possible? She said, it's up to the technical officials, their job to do it. We should have checked it. We didn't, somebody missed it. Okay. Now who knew who needed to know you know, what other information did I need and who was going to make the next decision? Because in the Olympic scenario, as the organizing committee, we're just providing the opportunity for the, for that sport to take place. We have the international Olympic committee that actually owns the rights to the whole event. And then we've got the international federation who's actually running the event. 
So our role in this case is really tertiary to the, the key decision maker, but we're going to, you know, it's our brand. And then would we inform the press and the media? So as I'm gathering the information and fighting for information and trying to keep Bob and Jim and the op center informed of what's going on, ultimately the Federation made a decision and they said, we're moving the vault to the right height and the girls will keep competing. That's the decision that got made. And it really didn't come out for years and years and years later that that's what happened. Really? I mean, it was just not a story until years later. No, that's remarkable because when you're in front of billions of people, things that go wrong don't stay a secret for very long. It's remarkable that that happened that way. So let's let's move to the Olympics in Tokyo this year, which has been incredibly complicated for for those who are working on the project. You're you're not working on it. I'm not working on it. But but they had to move this gargantuan event a year forward, and that's really really hard. But they they also had to deal with this ever changing COVID nineteen restriction uh, and 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 mandates relative to really everything right from transportation to housing to the ultimate inability to accommodate fans in the sports venues so all all of this was against the backdrop of enormous expense and public opinion in japan which was very negative about proceeding all of as all of this unfolded were were you at all concerned about the focus on covid-19 which was totally necessary of course but but that it might naturally divert attention from other important details. Yeah, I think that having to focus on how do you're going to run an event in this COVID atmosphere naturally takes your eye off of other topics. I think you could probably point to some of the court intrusion we saw when the NBA came back, even with only 2,500 to 3,000 fans, and we had court intrusions going on. Largely, I would suggest that those, my, my counterparts, my, my clients at those arenas were so focused on ensuring that, that all the COVID overlay stuff had to be put in place to meet the requirements of the league, that sometimes some of the other smaller details might get missed, having a, an usher at the right spot or a guard at the right spot, et cetera, to avoid that possibility. So I think in Tokyo, I think that's just exacerbated possibly because now we're dealing with an amateur organization who's trying to run events for probably the very first time in two years. They did some test events, I would assume, back in 1999, getting ready for, I'm sorry, 2019, getting ready for 2020. And now they've been pushed off to 2021. So it's not like these groups have been running events for the last 18 months. I'm sure they're going to miss some things. Yeah, I, I think it's really it's really instructive for us to remember that when, when something does go south on us, everything else is still important. Everything else still has to operate smoothly. And if you're planning for something as, I mean, incredibly impactful as COVID-19, it doesn't mean security operations, transportation, any, any of the other details required are any less important. They still need uh, an enormous amount of attention and and maybe even in the in the course of undertaking enormous additional expense maybe even need more people to right. make sure that you don't take your eye off the ball everywhere else right i mean that's that's kind of the lesson there 
Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now all of us uh, in whatever industry we're in, personally and professionally, we've had to manage through the challenges of operating during this pandemic. Now, regulations and protocols are really different from place to place, and and staying on top of the changing wisdom and government guidance has been really, really difficult. And sometimes we're getting conflicting uh, answers on what we should be doing. Now, you had a particularly difficult job on behalf of the NCAA, especially when you had to step in at the last minute to assist. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, difficult, but fortunate, right? As, As COVID hit us, we all had to kind of transform a little bit. And as security became less the topic and safety became more the topic and dealing with our counterparts in in local health departments became the real focus of bringing events back, the NCAA turned to us and said, can you write all of the protocols and guidelines for us to return to championships? And this was back in um, 2020. With the eye being that we were going to run fall championships. And the directive from the executive board to the leadership that we were engaged by was if we start a sport, we have to have a plan to finish it. We can't do what we did in March and just cancel and send everybody home. So we took on that endeavor to write guidelines and policy for every possible fan, no fan, broadcast, no broad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all those documents are published on the NCAA website. Fall championships get postponed. D1 fall championships move to kind of a sub-winter spring calendar. And so now we get really focused on winter championships, which are starting in late February this year. And to your point previously about Tokyo, the NCAA looked at us and said, hey, our staff, we haven't done events in 18 months, some 24 months. We think we need your help to actually implement these protocols at every one of these events. And I, I had said, you know, I think not only that, but we need to stand up an op center. You know, we've got this these peaks of events going on. It's primarily in March um, and May, where in May we had 50 events going running concurrently around the U.S. with 50 different local health departments. And so that was a significant challenge to ensure that the testing provider, that our job was, we called it the COVID overlay manager. We made sure that the testing operations worked because your testing providers, you know, Frank, at at events like this, they're great medical professionals and and they might be pandemic experts. They're not operators. So when you say, hey, please go roll out a testing program to to test 5,000 people daily at this event, you know, yep, they can figure it out, but operation, it doesn't work. So our team got engaged on making sure that that operation worked and that all of the protocols at each of these um, events were implemented. And it was huge, it was wildly successful. We were just looking and, and I was on a call with the NCAA Medical Advisory Group. We ran close to 150,000 tests. And I think we only had 60 confirmed positive athletes and maybe six to eight teams that we had to, you know, make a decision with the advisory group to the committee that they just couldn't compete, you know, any further in this regional or championship. The worst being the NC State, you know, College World Series baseball scenario where they literally got, you know, a game away. And that was very unfortunate, but I believe it was still the right decision. Nonetheless, we crowned 67 champions since the end of February. Over 200 
six events. And incredible. I mean, and just the amount of orchestration between all of those health departments with all of whom had different guidance and different requirements. It's just remarkable. So you and I worked together on the Super Bowl for about a decade, and, and you talked a little bit about this um, uh, concept that you had done and, and had actually participated in, and in Sydney, I believe it was, which was simulating for two and a half days. We, we brought you in at the NFL to conduct a tabletop exercise. Explain to us what those are and how they help with preparedness and frankly, what kinds of companies and projects can best use them? Yeah, you know, exercising is is paramount to success, right? Teams practice before they play and have a playbook for how they're going to react to different situations. And 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 yet we, as as a, as, as business leaders, whether we're in the event side or whether we're in corporate America, you know, not always do we think that 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 we need to exercise complex operational plans. And you were you were a big believer in it and, and, and a fan of ours. So, you know, the idea being, how do I prepare for the problems I'm going to face in either a communications and decision making process like a tabletop exercise or full scale exercise where we, we get very tactical and we have full response operations or a simulation like the one I explained um, that, that we that we had in, in, in Sydney. Tabletop exercises are the easiest to run, right? They're 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 the least resource impactful, um, and can can be form two different kind of objectives, right? It, the law enforcement tabletop exercise, and I'm sure you went to a few of them in your Super Bowl days and, and in NHL days. They get to be really tactical to confirm plans and resources, right? And and it's to say I've got the federal agencies and the local agencies, and if this happens, you got these resources. We got those huge. You're the Two people are going to talk about it when we figure it out. Whereas the exercises that we ran for you are more of an operational exercise and really focused on the communication and decision making. When an incident happens, or even prior to it really happening, is, is where is the information going, right? Our objective is how do we get the right information to the right people at the right time to make the right decision? You've been a decision maker for a long time. If you only have 50% of the info, you got half a chance of getting the decision right. So it's really working with that, that team that's part of that exercise as to who's going to find this information out, how will they find it out, what are they going to do with it, and are they going to share it? Do they understand the teamwork process of communications? And, you know, it's really what are the immediate actions? Too often we get in these exercises and I could sit and say, well, I got a team that'll, that'll end up doing this or end up doing that and we're going to resolve it and it'll be all fixed. Frank, don't worry about it. No, 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 no. The first second you hear what happened, what do you do? Because that's the key. Like, who am I talking to? Who am I bringing in? How am I pulling them into this conversation? And what are the first things they're going to do? That's the key to us getting ahead of that game. Yeah. And the tabletop exercise um, for our listeners is really exactly that. You're sitting around a table, you're sitting around a conference table and you're talking through simulations. You're not actually doing them necessarily. And, and I, I liken them to a rehearsal, right? It, even yeah. if you are a, uh, an executive and you make, you're going to make a sales presentation or capabilities presentation, you're going to rehearse that once. 
right? You're going to see how it sounds. You're going to see if you've got the PowerPoint right. You're going to see if the projector works correctly. You're going to do all of those things. Well, this is the same thing on an operational level, right? You yep. want to make sure that that your operations work. Maybe you have an operations center for this project that you're rolling out. Maybe you don't, but but the the way you make decisions, the way your team communicates is so important and that's what a tabletop exercise really does. And and Dan, you and I uh, were at in New Orleans when the lights went out. And, you know, you mentioned something really important, which was, well, what's the first thing you do? And I remember the first thing I did. The first thing I did was not about the electricity getting restored. The first thing was, what do we tell people? Right. Right. Because we had actually rehearsed this over a tabletop, not for a power failure, but for really any kind of a major interruption of what we were doing. What do we tell people? We know that we've got 74,000 people outside our door. We don't want them to panic. We don't want them making the wrong decision. We want to guide them the right way. What do we tell people was the very first thing that we came up with from our simulation around the table. Well, and it wasn't... in addition, it was, what are they going to see, right? Remember, we made a decision very quickly to keep the teams on the field. And that was kind of a lesson from a previous power outage at Candlestick that, you know, Jim Mercurio went through, right? Keep everybody calm because we knew this wasn't a security incident at the very beginning. But that, you know, that idea that the public that we're trying to keep calm and safe and secure, you know, this this goes even further into can we continue to operate as plans or do we need a team working on worst case scenarios, right? Because as operators, we focused on, on best case outcome, right? This happened. How can I get right back to normal operations? And, and then, you know, I kind of played the role for you as, okay, let's let me sit back and think about worst case outcomes and, and, and throw some issues at you as you're trying to figure out how we get back to normal operations quickly you know, and, I, and some trains in New Jersey come to mind here, but, you know, we, we don't need to go down that path either. Well, that was something that went wrong. And you're right. And one of the things that that we learned was you need to delegate again to people who are not directly solving the problem to think about what happens if the problem's not solvable and right. how you would go about that. So very, very hard for one person to be able to make the decisions on responding to a crisis and also project into the, the, the darkest world of all, which is, this is not, this is not solvable, but it's manageable. We have to manage it. And, and that's, you know, delegating was really important for that. Now you've been involved with other incidents that have happened at, at corporate events like Dreamforce. Now, Dreamforce, for our listeners, uh, is an annual event that's organized by Salesforce. It's become a must-attend event in the technology space. And it takes place in multiple venues all across San Francisco. And many of those activities are in very visible outdoor spaces. Now, not everything goes right when it comes to corporate activities either, not just sports, but when it's outdoors, it's it's even more challenging. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about your experiences with Dreamforce. Well, we've we've been fortunate to have a great client with Salesforce, and they've fully bought into the idea of apl- applying the various lessons we have learned in you know other major events like Super Bowls to their conference best practices, and they invest significantly to do so. 
So Dreamforce, as you mentioned, is an event. It's about 45,000 truly registered attendees, but it's over 100,000 people on site because of the, the, the free passes and, and just the number of people that are there just, just to network. So they give us a lot of resource. And my team has the responsibility for developing and implementing the overall safety, security, and crowd management plan for the event annually. We get things like a full operations center with an Intel team and, and most of the technologies you would expect in, in NFL control or at, at the Indy or wherever with state, you know, including video surveillance, we have drones flying, we have weapons detection, and we have all the key departments in this op center. Production, you know, marketing from Salesforce, everybody, and, it, and including San Francisco PD. So the big event for each Dreamforce, the reason there is a Dreamforce, is the CEO's keynote address. And it's the highlight, right? He also has sessions with luminaries like Barack Obama that, that attend. And so we have similar challenges when, when we have those kind of luminaries. The challenge is there's 8,000 seats for 45,000 accredited attendees. So Frank, that'd be like you inviting 350,000 people to the Super Bowl for only 70,000 seats and saying, okay, we're gonna reserve a few here and there, but mostly it's first come first serve. And we have to screen them all, we have to do all these great things. So it's a significant challenge. So recently we added vehicle screening as part of our security posture. So any vehicle on, on event days that was gonna get into a loading dock had to be checked by a canine unit. And the first year we do it, of course, when things go wrong, we get a dog that sits on a, a canine unit that sits on a car about 45 minutes before we're gonna start the big movement for Mr. Benioff's keynote speech. Now, when the dog sits, that means they've detected something. They've detected a explosive something chemical or an explosive. So now we're looking at the possibility of having a shutdown. And I've got a client and a whole op center that's looking at me as I'm standing in front of a, a, a screen of monitor, a wall of monitors. And I've got some really good resources out on the ground that I can, I can make things happen. I go into my OODA loop. I, I love the term OODA loop. I think if you look up, you know, Colonel John Boyd came up with OODA, meaning observe, orientate, decide, and take action. And it, it was really how a combat um, jet pilot could overcome a better jet by being a better pilot, by, make, by following the OODA loop. So I'm, I'm now at the point of how much time do I think I have to make a decision? is this vehicle on a master delivery schedule? And right away I get the answer, no. What does the driver know? I'm just a delivery driver. I was told to pick up this box from the airport and deliver it here. He doesn't know who told him, he knows nothing. All of the news is going negative at this point. Who's it addressed to? Can we find him? You know, Can I get another canine unit over to assess this vehicle? And the canine industry doesn't like that. I, I tend to think, okay, but I still want a second opinion. It's kind of like going to your doctor. Um, all at the same time, I've got the sergeant from the San Francisco PD standing right next to me. I've got my client on one side and I've got some people who aren't used to this kind of environment in the room and their eyes, I look around the room and their eyes are, you know, very big at the time. They, you know, they think we're going to have a, a serious issue. The sergeant looks at me and says, do you want me to bring my team in? And I said, not yet. I can't have you come in and shut this, the whole block down. Cause I know that's what you'll do. He goes, yeah, that's what they'll do. And I said, can't do it yet. 
So then I'm, I'm continuing my OODA loop and I said, does, does it look suspicious? And every, you know, I've got people out on the ground. We've, we've created this perimeter. We're pushing people opposite directions. Doesn't, it's a, it's a, it's a box. It's packaged up like it was meant to be there. They finally find the guy who it was to be delivered to. They get him on the phone and I grab the phone and I start talking to this guy. I'm like, who are you? Who do you work for? Why is this package coming in today? Why wasn't it on a delivery schedule? How close are you? Can you get down there and, and you know, visualize, you know, visually tell me that that's your package. That happens in about 30 seconds. And as he's going there, I said, where did this come from? What is it? He said, it's brackets I need for a stage I'm building. And it came from a show in LA last night. I said, well, did the show possibly have any fireworks or any, you know? And he goes, yeah, probably. And I'm like, I had a former SFPD lieutenant on my team and he's standing right out there and he's been like, Dan, let me just take this box. I'll get rid of it. I finally give him the intel. He goes, I'm taking the car. I'm driving it two blocks down the street. Tell the sergeant the SFPD team can find it there. I turn around to the room and I said, we're all clear. The head of security for Salesforce had stepped out of the room and he's just walking back in. He'd stepped out because he's talking to the general counsel, you know, preparing. He's he's already two steps ahead of, you know, what happens in this. Already talking to the lawyer. Right. He walks in and he goes, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean it's all clear? And I'm like, well, uh, can we just pull a smaller group together and tell you what actually happened here? You know, and and, and it, it was one of those where now you go from that adrenaline to now having a shift and you've had pushed all of your resources around this campus to handle this problem. And now you got to get them restaged to handle those 45,000 people that want to come in for 8,000 seats to see the boss. Well, luckily that all turned out great, but, but sometimes they don't, right? So planning and managing to avoid a crisis is paramount. We've talked about that. Um, we try to reduce to the greatest degree possible the chances of something going wrong. Um, and we've done, you and I have done that together, in fact. But sometimes you, Dan, you get involved in evaluating a crisis after the fact to determine what led to the situation. Something actually did happen, something awful. And you deal with how the response and aftermath might have been different, how you might have avoided it. Um, but also how, how it was managed um, in the heat of the moment. And one of those crises that you were involved with was, was really tragic. It was outside the Manchester Arena after a, an Ariana Grande concert. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, you know, that's the, the, the worst case scenario in our business. And, um, you know, I got, we got a phone call 48 hours after the incident happened, and, and we were asked if we could put a team together to go over to Manchester to assess – the plan going into the night, what actually got executed that night, because the plan and, and you know the actual are always different. And then what what should they do to reopen? What did they need to get done to create a security posture for reopening? And you know the first two parts of our of our engagement were via their outside counsel because they were preparing for all the p- potential litigation support. And so we, we took a team over. I took a team of experts, Joe Coomer from Mercedes-Benz Stadium and Kirk Randazzo. And, you know, we had a, a really strong team of experts that went over and we looked at the plan. We, and we you know, we were in interviewing people the week of. And it was a difficult daily set of conversations because you're dealing with people that just lived through this. And, and, and lived through a, a, an attack. 
an attack in, in which people died. Yeah. They, coming they, out of the arena. They, they, they lost friends. They lost, you know, some employees. Um, and it was, you know, you can look at the after actions. It was a, it was a terrible incident and it was recently in the news that the, the British government have just done a, you know, another review to try and change some of the, you know, the, the, the policies, I would say more than law in, in Britain about how events should be run. And there was some really critical quote unquote experts that suggested that with a 25 year old camera system that somebody, a $10 an hour guard should have seen this individual who was in a public space called the city room across, you know, and suggested that that should have been identified. When the reality was, in my opinion, when the security guard prior to egress actually witnessed this individual who did look a little out of place and walked towards him, that's when the incident took place, which is very consistent with what all of the intelligence agencies tell us, is that the first interaction of law enforcement or security, they're either going to act or turn away and go home and do and, and decide on another day. This individual acted. Um, and frankly, you know, it's fortunate that he did what he did. Because a minute later, in the in, it would have been twice as bad. So the staff there actually executed a plan for the egress after that incident took place really unbelievably well, as well as providing aid to the injured. And it's not like they had a massive um, EMT, you know, medical team or law enforcement in the UK. Literally, there was two officers assigned to that train station and arena for the whole night. So it's not it's it's very different than our events where at an NFL stadium, you're going to have 200 to 250 law enforcement officers plus EMTs plus plus plus. Right. So these people, I, I, I commend the SMG staff that that ran that arena and, and what they did. I think they could have had better technologies in place and all that good stuff. There's a lot of things you you could say. But it was one of the hardest things was watching that video as a professional in this industry. And, you know, but we, we quickly shifted to creating a plan for how to reopen, you know, and implementing weapons detection and screening and, you know, setback and vehicle mitigation. And, you know, it was it was wildly successful reopening. And I, and I think a lot of the things that we put in place, they're still doing today. Well, Dan, a, a, a lot of what you've dealt with uh, or a lot of what you've helped are, are sports and event organizers and you've helped us plan to deal with and, and uh, you know, the unimaginable in some cases. And in the case of the, of the arena in Manchester, it was very imaginable because it happened, but you know, really all of what you've been talking about is, is really transferable to any other customer driven business, yeah. Re whether it's retail, commercial, real estate, transportation, What's your advice as we close to, to the broad business community about preparing for things that could go wrong, regardless of the industry? I, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, and it's how do we practice to prepare for the problems we are likely to face? Whether, whether we're a large, complex sporting event or entertainment event or, or, or corporate event 
or just a rollout of a new product or the execution of, of, of a larger you know, contract, there are problems that you're going to face throughout the, that process. What are, the, what are the processes you're putting together to practice solving those problems? It could just be communication decision-making. It might be resources, but practicing really makes perfect. I mean, that's, that's why we've got teams that execute better than other teams. And, and we should apply that knowledge and that expertise to, to our corporate life. It, it also shows you the gaps. It shows you the gaps in the system, in your assumption. And, and one of the things that I think we've all learned over time is you have to make sure that when you find those gaps and you create a workaround, a plan, a contingency, whatever it is, what's really, really important is that it's actionable. That, right. that it's not just checking off the box, I now have a plan. That, now yep. you have to test that plan and make sure that that plan can work, that you have the right people in place, you have the right equipment in place, you have the right communication systems in place to make sure that they do. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head because it's not only having the plan, we've all worked with people that just don't communicate well, but they've got this other great expertise. And you've got to find the people that can be part of that execution, that plan that can communicate. They may not be the expert on, on the delivery because there's a technology, somebody that has to, has to do that job, but somebody has got to be the communicator. If we can communicate well, we can solve problems. Well, thank you, Dan listeners. We've been talking with Dan Donovan, the managing director of Stratoscope. And as you can tell from our conversation, I've worked with Dan on many projects, his keen eye, has very often helped to identify vulnerabilities to my own plans and gaps in my own plans. And, and I've relied on him over the years. And, and uh, you know, find yourself a Dan Donovan, if not the Dan Donovan. To contact Dan, simply go to stratoscope.com. That's stratoscope, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-C-O-P-E.com. And hit the contact tab for his email and a query form. Um, and if you, if you don't end up working with Dan, which uh, I, I'll continue to work with Dan for many, many years, I hope, uh, you know, find yourself a Dan because you really do need uh, someone who can help guide you through uh, the planning process, find the gaps, find those vulnerabilities, identify them for you, and, and then ultimately come back with a plan to help you solve them. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on When Things Go Wrong. Always a pleasure, Frank, to spend time with you. Learn more about how to plan for and survive the inevitable blips, bloopers, and blunders of life and business in What to Do When Things Go Wrong, available in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. I'm Frank Sapovitz, and remember, if it hasn't happened to you, it just hasn't happened to you yet. The When Things Go Wrong podcast is produced by Chris and Mandy Wimmer and is a production of Black Barrel Media in association with Fast Traffic Entertainment. You can find more Black Barrel Media shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. For more background on this show, join us at Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, at B Barrel Media on Twitter, and on our website at blackbarrelmedia.com. See you next time, if all goes well. Thank you.